Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we still know our names. Thanks again for coming back. We are lucky to be speaking again with one of our good friends, Helen Block, the founder of the law offices of Helen Block PC. If you want to hear Helen's whole bio, which is extremely impressive, please go back and listen to her first episode. You can learn all about uh, the intersection of workers' comp, COVID-19, and employment law. And here's some really interesting stories about how those things play out in, in reality. Helen has over 20 years of legal experience and has been recognized by her peers as a super lawyer, a designation provided to less than 5% of attorneys. Helen is also part of the Financial Poise faculty and is a lecturer in this series, Protecting Your Employee Assets, The Life Cycle of the Employment Relationship. As to that last credential, I will speak from experience. It's always the worst to have to talk about a topic right after Helen goes because she is so thorough and detailed that there's rarely anything left to talk about because Helen did such a good job. So always terrible to have to follow Helen. No, I'm kidding. It's We have a lot of fun on those shows. And I think we're a good team. Yeah. With Gary and Chuck, we all make up for each other and I think we've all had to miss something recently and all covered for each other. So it always goes well. No, but you might when I have to drive my kid to camp. I still oh, no. have to figure that one out. Just don't <laughs> spring it on June his last 15. second if it's something that's like actually requires legal analysis and research or we're screwed. Yeah, hopefully he'll, he'll Chuck will send the bio well in advance or I mean the, the, the questions well in advance so I can let you guys know. But I am scheduled. To, I know this is probably going to be edited out, but keep scheduled. It. To- oh, we keep it. <laughs> I'm scheduled to be driving my kid either to or from camp on that day. So I hope I could take the call in the car. That's what I'm trying to, 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 to do. So, you know, lucky it's remote. This is the nice thing of, or the silver lining of COVID is you could do, you probably can do that call remotely and still drive your kid to summer camp. Well, this is pre COVID in a way, because all these are, are calls anyway, these are not supposed to be in, in person. And this was, as I said, we started this series before COVID and they've always been calls, which is, you know, it's kind of weird in light of COVID, you think everyone should be, should be zoom, 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 and let's see everyone. And so this is in a way kind of old fashioned in that respect. We got to get Chuck on this podcast because he's a pure defense lawyer and he's the only solo L&E defense lawyer that I know. I think that would be a cool, uh, cool perspective to have on here. So we'll have to rope Chuck in on the plaintiff side for one of these at some point. Yeah, from Manchester. Actually, you know what Chuck would be really good at as well is union, like from the perspective oh, yeah. of, of, the, of the union, because that's what his background really is. I mean, he worked on the management side against unions, essentially. So that might be an interesting perspective. Well, and that's a great segue because yeah. you started working at the city of Chicago and then got into employment law. So how did that happen? Because... I was at that five-year mark at the city of Chicago. I started as a prosecutor. So half my time was as a prosecutor and half my time was as a defense attorney, mostly doing workers' compensation, but some towards personal injury. And as a five-year attorney, you kind of look at your career and say, hey, am I ready to be a government career lawyer or not? Because after five years, you kind of thought to have had experience and it's hard to find a job in private practice, especially if you're a government lawyer, you don't have a book of business quote unquote clients. And so I was right there in five years and I had been handling workers' compensation. I actually tried to get into another division. I could not. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be stuck doing workers' comp the rest of my life. I'm not ready to be pigeonholed to be a government attorney. I better find something else. 
And that is when I decided to look for a new job. And because I was involved in bar associations like the Decalogue Society of Lawyers, I was on the board at that time. I was a, a student representative and I just stayed on. They asked me to, to be a board member. I knew Michael Hyman, who's now um, an Illinois appellate court judge. I knew him well, he's a past president of Decalogue. And he said, hey, a colleague of mine, a Laurel Bellows is looking to hire. I knew nothing about the firm. I knew nothing about what they practice but it was an opportunity to do something else. And so I uh, applied for the job and I was accepted. And so that's kind of how my whole career, including the decision to go to law school went. I just kind of went with the flow. Nothing was really thought out, like this is my path and this is what I wanna do in life. I just kind of went along as the opportunities came to me. And uh, yeah, that's why I mentioned, I never took an employment law class in, in, in law school and that is so much of what I do now. It's funny. I think quite a few of us really that we've interviewed so far fell into this area. And I think even Rich Gonzalez, who we kind of jokingly said is like the godfather of, you know, well, Kent, we know, but also of plaintiff's employment law in our, in Neela's bar, other than David Lee, like even he didn't set out to do that. And he's right. taught all of us. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah. And that's why my practice is so unique because when I opened my own practice over 13 years ago, I had such diverse experience and I was able to combine what I'd done with the city with what I had done at Bellows and Bellows and each were so diverse, like, you know, and that was a challenge working at Bellows and Bellows because when I left the city, they looked at me as a fifth year attorney, but I had practiced in such narrow areas between, you know, the, the, the municipal code violations when I started as a prosecutor to the workers' compensation, they're so specific in, in areas that until they threw me in a court, maybe two years later, they thought I actually had no value for them, honestly. I mean, it was, it was hard. It was, it, was, it was really hard getting up to speed in, in the areas in which they practiced because I, I really felt as though, even though I was a fifth year attorney, I was fresh out of law school because I had no experience in the areas in which they practiced in. And what I had done at the city, even though you have to think fast on your feet, unless you're gonna be in court, it really didn't help. But for opening my own practice, it's fabulous because I have these interesting unique niches, you know, like I also defend folks that have problems with the city of Chicago. That's a whole different area. I know that's not, nothing necessarily related to Neela. The workers' comp is related to Neela because it affects, you know, workers, but that's why I handle those other areas also because I have experience in those areas. Well, I just, the, the thing I love about your past is it was pure networking. It was just, you reached out to someone while you're on a board saying, hey, I need a job. And that led to Bellows and Bellows, which led to your own, own firm. And so is that, is that Bellows and Bellows, is that where you started doing some executive compensation work and working with executives? Exactly. At Bellows and Bellows, we had high net worth clients. We also had business clients. And a lot of what I did, and a lot of what I did is really, you learn from experience. So as I mentioned, the first two years, I was kind of useless to Bellows. It was good for me because when you work with executives and you work with negotiating employment agreements and severance agreements, so much of it is just feeling it is not necessarily legal. It's a matter of where you can push, where you can pull, where you have leverage. And it takes really years of experience being in different situations because employment, unlike the areas I practice at the city, it is so diverse. Generally, it's rare to find people that have similar stories in terms of what happened at work. I mean, there are some common themes such as, you know, and this is very common in, in my area, you know, like I've been at that place for you know, 20 some years, I'm in my fifties, I get a new boss and I can't do anything right after having excellent performance reviews. I mean, that is a common theme, but, but every employer has such a unique work environment and, and, you know, and each business is so different from the other that the set of facts are so diverse that in order to be able to, to negotiate on behalf of employees, whether they're executives or, or non-executives, 
you really have to have a sense and, and a feel. And that really takes years to develop. So it took a while for me even to pick up that sense from handling so many different kinds of cases and negotiations at Bellows and Bellows. And a lot of what I do isn't necessarily legal. It's really strategic and it is what leverage do we have and, and experience to be able to help our clients. That's, that's the right word. I that my favorite part about working with working on the executive side, it's a strategy. It's just a different yeah. I don't know if it's litigation even, this is a different type of employment law. And I, I, so I really enjoy that. So tell us a little bit then what you do with executives. What is, what strategy or strategic options are you doing? So it depends on what end of the employment relationship they're coming to me, depending on if they are coming to me to review, let's say an offer of employment. Actually, there are three different scenarios. It could be at before they're hired at the at the offer stage or they're 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 looking at multiple opportunities. It could be helping them salvage their job and just pure counseling and ghosting them in the background where their employer has no clue that they're consulting with someone. In a way, you know, we act also as psychologists a lot of the times and we just do pure counseling of clients. And sometimes, you know, I will ghost emails for clients, you know, and I will say to them, you know, Unless it's about, you know, literally like the day-to-day functions of your job, you know, contact me, let me read this over before you send it to your employer. So it's either at, you know, before the job starts, in the middle of the job, in terms of certain things might happen, and I advise my clients how to deal with certain situations, or it's at the end. Either they're on their way out the door, or they're actually offered a severance package. And those are usually the different scenarios in which I find myself advising executives. And I guess there's probably a fourth scenario too, which is a combination of one and three. It's someone who has an, a new offer opportunity from a new, from a new employer and wants to exit from the former employer. And you have to kind of figure out how do we do that? Exactly. That actually kind of happened very, very recently where I was helping to negotiate an offer, an incredibly lucrative offer. And we were pretty close. And my client was fine at their current job, you know, fairly happy, but this was, you know, a new opportunity, something a little different. And we're toward the end of the negotiating and the other side just got just too aggressive with trying to push it in the end, you know, like take it or leave it finally. And if we just had another call, I think we could have worked it out, but my client not being a lawyer did not like that aggressiveness and took it as this is a portent of things to come and actually ended up negotiating a better deal at their current place of employment. And then I helped my client actually stay where they are and negotiate a better deal where they are with a different position. And they seem to be really happy. And it's not always about the money because that other deal probably would have at the end of the day may have been more money if they were able to survive. I mean, granted, this individual is highly, highly compensated. So it's not like he's crying over lost money, but sometimes it happens, you know? And sometimes it's a matter of trying to string the job on long enough if it's not working out so that your client gets another job and you can help them with that other, with that other, you know, other job. I, I like what you said about often wearing the hat of therapist or, or it's not really always about like the legal arguments. Sometimes it really is about leverage or just strategy or just common sense with people, right? Getting on the phone with opposing counsel and being like, look, this is not working. No one is benefiting from this. Let's just let everybody get their dignity, get their act together and find a way out of this that doesn't involve us all killing each other, right? Because, you know, so much of what we do, right, is not about the ultimate outcome. It's about the pain and cost in between that when you get there, right? Right. 
And sometimes employers, like they're relieved because they know maybe a situation happened. And even though they deny, 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 deny that they're liable, they know there might be some liability. And who wants to be there after this uncomfortable situation? But they, if they terminate the individual, they'd be retaliating. So sometimes they're happy. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. We'll offer your severance package three months. That's, that makes sense. And let's work out an amicable parting of the ways. But you have to be able to sense that when it's feasible. So often, at least in my practice, you know, a lot of people we see say, well, I've got a contract, I've got this, and we have to explain at will to them because probably paragraph number one or two of your contract is this is not a guarantee forever. It's just an offer setting forth compensation. We can still fire you, you're at will, all of that. But when you've got highly paid executives and you have contracts that do have some force, my partner and I joke, you know, when somebody calls and says we have a contract, we're like, all right, is it a real contract or is it just an offer letter that has no anything behind it? You know, we're in the employment law field, we're so often used to seeing people with the with that other thing, the the letter that says, here's what you're paid, but this isn't negotiable, all of that. Can you talk about some of the things that actually, some of the ways you can actually go about negotiating that where, where you have people saying, take it or leave it, or, or if it's not necessarily a take it or leave it situation, you have highly paid folks where they're wanted badly enough where there is some wiggle room. Sure. <clears throat> all right. So let me break a little bit of that down. So first of all, you started with discussing, is it really at will? Is it not at will? You really need to look to the terms of the agreement. And sometimes they are contradictory. Sometimes it says it's at will, but it's really not. And you know where you see this actually most common? It's not necessarily even with executives. It's the funniest thing. It's like, this is at will, but we need you to give us four weeks notice if you're going to leave. It's only one side. What? It's only one side, right? It'll be the employer saying, Right. Employee, give me four weeks notice. But from our standpoint, it's still at will. We don't have to give you notice. Right, exactly. And so the thing is, is that, you know, when you're looking at this language, you, you want to know how hard you can push because at the end of the day, I could tell my client, this is not at will and you're going to be entitled to four weeks of pay, but you don't want to get into that situation because it's not worth the attorney's fees to fight it. So that's one of the situations where you want to try to help your client negotiate a change to that language to either truly make it at will or the other, but clarify it one way or another because it's in your client's best interest to not have that ambiguity, more likely. than In terms of executives and what to negotiate for, the more highly sought an individual is, makes the negotiation go so much easier. When there are a lot of candidates and they can really hop onto the next one, you don't have as much leverage to negotiate and it makes the negotiation far, far more, far more challenging. So, you know, some of the things that you see up front is especially like an executive are the four cause provisions for termination, because a lot of times with executives or highly compensated individuals, they're going to have some sort of more likely than not non-competition and non-solicitation provision that the employer is going to want them to abide by post-termination. Now in Illinois, um, there's case law. Now, hopefully it's law that he wants passed will clear this up, but until that happens, you know, because Amit's been working on some, you know, terrific legislation, but until that happens, there is really no clear scenario. And what I mean is, is that under the way the cases have come down in Illinois courts, not the federal courts, unless an employee has worked at a place for two years or more, the non-competition and non-solicitation provisions might not apply because they may not have been given enough what's called consideration, like enough money or enough benefits or enough something 
to make that stick. Like employers tend to think, gee, I give you a job and in exchange for me giving you a job, you have to abide by all these terms because that's great consideration. You're lucky to have a job for me. And courts have basically said, no, the employment in and of itself is not enough consideration to keep you out of a market unless it's long-term employment. But going into the situation, you always have to look at it like it could be long-term employment and these provisions might stick. So with that in mind, you go into it saying, okay, if they're gonna be kept out of the market for a certain period of time, are they gonna be given money at the end to stay out of that market? And so a lot of times for um, executives who are highly compensated, they do wanna keep them out of the market. And they know they have to give them adequate consideration to, to pay them to stay out of a market because we don't believe in slavery anymore in this country and we believe in free enterprise. So people should be able to find a job and work in the only industry they know. And employers know that because there've been cases on this. And so generally they do tend to wanna to give them some money, but employers don't like paying money. So they will say, we'll give you this money unless you're terminated for cause. And then the question is, how do you define cause? As employment lawyers, we try to narrow the definition of cause, but employers try to expand it. And this is the problem when you have folks not hiring a lawyer to negotiate their executive compensation agreement at the outset, because they might look at it and say, oh, it makes sense. Yeah, I violate the company's rules. Yeah, sure, they, you know, they have a right to terminate me. But the question is, what are the company's rules? Are they written rules? Is it that the manager says, don't do X, Y, and Z? And is that, you know, you violate that? So does that mean you're terminated for cause? So unless the cause definition is really narrow, and I do agree there should be some things that are for cause that you shouldn't get your you know, severance for, like you steal from the company. You know, you embezzle, you it's defraud the company. Are you not supposed what? to do that? Are you not supposed to do that? Is that bad? <laughs> really bad. It could be criminal too. Weird. You know? I had no idea. So yeah, so those kind of things make sense. But if it goes beyond those things, such as, you know, you uh, are insubordinate, you know, you violate company policy. Well, those cause are too ambiguous because you get that person who's worked at a company for like 10, 15 years, they get a new boss, they can't do anything right. And they're going to say they weren't supported. They didn't follow what I said. And maybe it's not reasonable what they said. Maybe they're just doing that to get rid of them. So they don't have to pay the severance. Right. When a so, lot of times yeah. those clauses are written, just like you said it, they're written yeah. as it's cause if you violate quote company policy, which is never defined. And who knows what that means? And then now on the back end, they've got to hire you again to then litigate and determine what that stuff means. Yeah, and it, or, right. or you get you get those situations, right, where it's like you have an employee who's been complaining about a supervisor in a whistleblowing or in a discrimination setting and the supervisor, you know, really crosses the line and pushes them over the edge and the employee snaps back and it's, well, you were insubordinate or you were, you know, abusive or something like that. And that's a right. zero tolerance policy. It's like, yes, the employees swore at you after you swore at them and threatened their life. You know, it's kind of like a, you know, and, and I know there's a provocation doctrine and that has its all hosted thing, but it, it's complicated. It's why they should hire a lawyer, right, Helen? <laughs> that, that's what I would say. I mean, I, I would say if it's, it's for an executive type of position, certainly. I mean, look, people hire me and it actually doesn't even cost a lot of money, you know, just when they get a, a job offer with an offer letter. And it really only takes a few hours of my time. So it's not, really not even a lot of money, but there are a lot of things I can point out to people that they didn't even think about, especially when they're leaving, you know, one job for another, such as insurance benefits. You know, are you getting comparable insurance benefits? If you're not getting comparable insurance benefits, maybe you should get like a, you know, ask for some additional compensation by way of, a, you know, a bonus or whatnot to make up the difference. Or maybe, 
you can negotiate in there that, you know, if this, if, if, if the benefits are not comparable, they will pay the difference or, or something simple like that. Or sometimes even just vacation days, you know, like they're used to working in a job that had, they had three weeks of vacation and now they're going to a job that had, you know, two weeks of vacation and they really thought they should have more. So even like simple things that people might not realize, we can bring to their attention and help them negotiate for some of those, those things that are not necessarily make it or break it, but just a matter of bringing it to their attention. You know, another thing also is, is that you'll see common, you know, in offer letters or whatnot, you know, you're also subject to the, the, you know, the, like the employment policies and procedures or, you know, whatever, you know, the rules we have in place, but it doesn't say written policies and procedures. So a manager or a boss or supervisor could just, you know, say something and then, oh, gee, I told you. And then, gee, you're being terminated because you didn't follow this, this rule. We should know what the rules are. And I tell my folks, if, if this language is in your offer letter, you want to make it that you're obligated to follow the written policies and procedures. And if this is significant enough, get a copy in advance, see what those written policies and procedures are and see if it's onerous or not. And if you can abide by these rules. And so if, if, if other documents or terms are being incorporated into an agreement, I will tell my client, get a copy of those in advance. You know what you're signing into. Like a lot of times in an offer letter, it'll just say, Oh, and you know, when you start your job, you know, you'll be expected to sign, you know, the, the, the company's standard, you know, inventions, confidentiality agreement. I said, well, a lot of times they're not always so standard, you know, so get a copy of that up front, you know, before you sign the offer letter to make sure you're comfortable with it. And more times than not, it's usually okay, but sometimes it's really not okay. And you'll need to negotiate that at the outset, along with your offer. Yeah, I, I feel like hiring an attorney in the front or back end, it's really just an investment. And 11 times out of 10, the attorney's probably going to find the money somewhere anyway. So it probably covers itself. You know, one question I get a lot from folks is, you know, non-competes, non-solicits, they're not enforceable. So why would I negotiate that? So what are your <laughs> thoughts on, on that question? <laughs> Helen, you seem to have opinions on this one. <laughs> no, I, I definitely, definitely do. I mean, there are so many ways that you can attack that question. So a lot of times it's true. At the end of the day, the way the non-compete or the non-solicit is written is so overbroad that it's not enforceable. But do you want to spend the money to litigate that? I can tell you, I've had clients who've received cease and desist letters and they are terrified. And they don't really know if this is just to scare them or they're, you know, the other side's calling their bluff or they're really going to file a lawsuit. And Amit, you and I know that people do sue over these things because Amit and I once worked together in a non-compete in which I actually defended the business. And Amit defended the actual employee who was being sued for allegedly, you know, violating terms of a, of a former uh, employer by going to work for my business client. So there are lawsuits over these things. And even though at the end of the day, Amit and I could both tell you that this was not an enforceable agreement at all whatsoever, it cost both of our clients a heck of a lot of money to defend what I would say was a frivolous action. And, and that's a perfect example of what I use with clients sometimes. We got the, the lawsuit on, a, I think it was a Wednesday night. We had to argue it the next morning in court. So we both had to be ready. I remember I had a motion ready. There was an oral argument. And then the whole thing is expedited. And so what does winning mean in that situation? Yeah, you're right. Like maybe the non-compete is not enforceable, but do you really want to have to find out? That was insane. I mean, I remember that. I actually think it was, a, we got it on a, I got a call at five o'clock on a Tuesday. It went into voicemail. And one of the reasons why I didn't pick up my phone is because I was speaking that night on behalf of, at a continually led education class on behalf of a, of a, of a business group 
and a bar association as a joint event. So I actually was not picking up my calls. And I decided to just check my message before I left. And here I am, I'm supposed to speak that night. I'm supposed to prepare for this presentation. And I get, and I hear this call, like, you know, just giving you, you know, notice that I'm going to be in court tomorrow morning in DuPage, not even Cook County, which is across the street from my <laughs> office in DuPage. And I had like, to rent no a one car. worked in DuPage. Yeah, I think the hardest part to go to Wheaton. You on, excited to go to Wheaton on ten. Excited to go to Wheaton on ten hours notice, Helen. Well, what was <laughs> insane is, as you know, once I leave work for the day, I don't. That's how I get my work life balance. I don't check email, nothing, and I didn't know what was happening. So I go into this this talk all frazzled, you know, not adequately preparing because now I'm thinking, what do I need to take with me before I leave the office? Because I got to be in DuPage tomorrow and preparing, which I had no time to do. I had this presentation. And so I get home from my presentation at nine o'clock at night. And that's when I got the documents. That's when I first got the documents. And it was like reams and reams of paper. I didn't even, I don't even know if I could print it. I think I went through my, every piece of paper I had in my house printing, whatever it was. It was like a stack, this thick of garbage. Ahmed, you know, went through it actually and actually had time to file a motion. I was just like, oh my God, I got to read this and I got to see if I can fall asleep so I can at least be alert on my feet. And I didn't even bother. I just was thinking in my head, what could I argue on my feet? He actually prepared a motion. Well, see, I have no work-life balance. So I love those types of cases. Those are my favorite situations. The hardest part for me for that one. Um, it's a sick man, by the way, Helen, is what you're hearing here. The <laughs> we didn't have kids for... yet. Yeah, exactly, so I don't have kids. It. Yeah, the hardest part actually was getting <clears> a ride. I had to find a way to get a rental car by the next <laughs> morning to get out to DuPage. And I was like, how am I gonna manage this? But yeah, no, I love that stuff. I'm in the minority. So I guess to circle back, Helen, to the other side of it, we've talked about the front end and, and what the value of an ounce of prevention is here, yeah. right? To quote our financial poise webinars, right? An ounce of prevention. But like, you know, the spending the money on the attorney on the front end can be worth it because there are a lot of things that, you know, Joe layperson doesn't really think of when, right. when they're looking at these agreements and understand the consequences. Let's, let's take a quick look at the back end. When you're negotiating a severance agreement on the other side of it, what are some of the challenges there? I mean, we've talked about a little bit of it already, but you know, to focus yeah. on it specifically, if there are a few more that we haven't really covered yet. I'm gonna to get to the back end, but one of the front end things that we should talk about to get us to the back end is change in control. Cause I think that's an important topic for us to talk about because that leads to the back end. So when you're an executive, a lot of times you're taking the job because of your relationship. You know, these people, you're taking it because you trust, let's say the CEO, you trust the board of directors. And so if it doesn't work out, if the board changes, if the directors change, if the CEO changes, if the company's sold, you want your way out. <clears throat> and so it's important on the front end to negotiate these variables, such as if this, this, and this happens, then you're gonna give me some severance and you're gonna give me severance under these conditions. And so that's something you wanna negotiate on the front end to get on the back end. Now, going to the, Back end. One of the things, and this is something I really have a hard time negotiating, but it is sometimes very important depending on the situation, is actually a non-disparagement provision. You always see, I shouldn't say always, but more likely than not, you see in a severance agreement that the company does not want you to disparage the company, but it goes, it's much broader than that. It doesn't want you to disparage their officers. I had a severance agreement recently where it said, family members of the owners. And I'm like, who are these people? Like, how is my client gonna know who they are? I mean, if they go to somewhere else, I mean, maybe they say something nasty and they happen to be a family member, they didn't even know about it. So, you know, you, you need to work to narrow these. 
But also your client is like, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Don't disparage me. I'm going to be out there. I'm looking for a job. I, you know, company, they don't want to give letters of reference anymore. They're, they're concerned about defamation or whatnot. So they have these blanket policies whereby we will give you a neutral reference. And that means we will confirm your dates of employment and last position held. And we're not going to say anything else about you. Okay. Well, that's great. And in a way that's not so bad because that is essentially industry standard. And so therefore, if you don't come in with this fabulous, you know, glowing recommendation, you know, it's common to say, well, this is the, the company's practice. They only do these, you know, neutral references and everyone understands that. But what about the assurance that they're not going to say something negative about you? So it's very important to try to, first of all, narrow these non-disparagement provisions, but see if the company will at least include some folks in this non-disparagement provision. Here's what I mean by some folks. Companies are always going to say, if you ask for a complete mutual non-disparagement, they're going to say, well, you know, we have like a thousand people working for us and we can't guarantee that the janitor is not going to say something negative about your person. Then we expose ourselves to a lawsuit. Okay, but hey, you can control your officer. You can control the person who supervised my client. And so you might want to name some specific individuals that will not disparage your client. And, and so those are one of the ways to work on it. Another thing is companies think they're giving you all this money out of the goodness of their heart, you know, to separate you. And they're not giving you money out of the goodness of their heart. They couldn't care less about you. They're giving you money for three reasons. One, they want assurance you're not going to sue them. They're going to want you to sign a general lease. Two, what I already talked about, the non-disparagement. They want to make sure you're not going to put that post on social media about on Glassdoor or whatnot, how awful they were. And three, confidentiality. Oh, maybe there's a fourth reason that you're not going to compete or solicit. But depending on the company, that might not be so important. But it's at minimum, those three, maybe those four things. That's why they're giving money. But the client says, hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You don't want me to sue you. Don't sue me. It is rare to get a mutual release. Very rare. Because the company says, we're paying you. What are you giving us to give us that mutual release? So more likely than not, you're not going to get a mutual release. But what you might get is at least an admission from the company that they can put in there that as of this date, you know, as of the date that we ex execute this, you know, severance agreement, we know of no claims against you. That's something you have a better chance of getting, but you will rarely get a mutual release of claims. Yeah, and going back to the non-disparagement angle, I've noticed that now in employment agreements too. So that's another yes. thing folks should be negotiating on the front end, because then if you wait too long and try to hire someone on the back end to negotiate that, it might just be too late. And I also think it's actually in the company's best interest maybe to include some sort of limited instruction language, because then if there is defamation in the future, they can say, oh, we told the employee not to do that. You can put them on the island a little bit. Right. That's a great point. Anything else? This will probably get cut. Anything else we want to cover on this topic, Helen? Or are you good if we start kind of winding down? Let me hang out and see some of the notes. I mean, we hopped around, but I feel like we covered most of the outline kind of by accident. You, as as predicted, were very thorough and in an, in an accessible way and kind of working us through this stuff. So I feel like we covered most of this, um, but I don't want to cut anything out if either you felt like there was more we wanted to hit here. Yeah. No, I mean, the only thing, and I can, I can just, just hone it like in a, in a summary is, is that, you know, when, when, when folks generally come to lawyers to negotiate, they're looking at it straight money, you know, dollars in my pocket. And they don't think about the terms that we've been discussing, such as 
the non-compete, the non-solicit, the restrictions, the confidentiality. They just think it's all boilerplate and everyone has the same kind of language. Right. And they don't really realize how it's going to impact future employment opportunities. I don't know if it's important or not. Like, I know I talked about change of control, but sometimes, you know, there's um, a term, golden parachute. I didn't use the term. If someone doesn't know what that is, if, whatever, if you think that's important. So Helen, you mentioned change of control type clauses. How are those different, if at all, from golden parachutes? They can be synonymous. And usually what a golden parachute refers to is when someone is being, is, is, leaving their position and they're an executive, what are they gonna get on the way out? Certain severance, certain, let's say, equity, shares, vesting, certain certain bonuses. And usually these golden parachutes come about as a result of change of control issues. And that's why it's a golden parachute is because you know, you're know you jumping out, you're on your way out and you get all this gold, you get all these you know extra perks and benefits and money. And so that's why sometimes you hear the, the term golden parachute, but sometimes it could also be synonymous with an exit strategy with change of control issues come about. I makes me think of Jack and the Beanstalk. I don't know why, but it does. <laughs> Helen, any last any last sort of parting words of wisdom for folks that they want to keep in mind if they're on the fence about whether or not to hire you or any other attorney to negotiate executive compensation, whether on the front or the back end? Yeah, there are a few things. So a lot of times when folks look at these employment agreements, they just think it's, oh, it's boilerplate language. And what matters at the end of the day is the dollar in my pocket. And there are a few things that you have to consider when looking at it from that perspective. One is, is that an attorney can actually make sure that what you've negotiated for yourself is really what's written in the actual agreement. Because that happens often where people think they've negotiated a great deal for themselves, and maybe they have, but the actual written document, which is what is going to control, because they usually always contain integration clauses that say this supersedes any previous oral discussion we had, anything else, you know, this is the agreement that controls. That is going to control. So you want to make sure that what you've negotiated for yourself actually matches. And the other thing is people think that all these terms is standard, non-competition, confidentiality, non-disparagement. It's going to be in any agreement they sign. And they're just looking at the dollar in their pocket. They're not looking at these terms. And the lawyers role really, really is not only to make sure that that the, the, the offer that they're getting matches what they think they're getting, but that these terms are favorable, the non-competition, the non-solicitation, what we call restrictive covenants, the non-disparagement, any other terms aren't going to hurt them getting a job in the future. Because if you don't properly understand these terms, they can prevent you from getting a job in the future, or they can get you fired from another job. And that is going to cost you money. So even though you think it's like not money in your pocket, it really isn't money in your pocket. So it's equally important to not only just look at it in terms of how much money am I being offered in terms of bonus and compensation, but what are the terms? Because that really can come back to bite you and be far more expensive than any money you're going to get from that job. When you use this word earlier, which is counseling, a lot of times you really are just counseling the client, so they even understand their obligations, even the stuff they can't negotiate, so they can prepare for a plan B. Oh, exactly. You know, a lot of times people will hire me just to explain what they're signing, and they, they don't even pay that much money. I mean, it's not like, a, you know, they have to pay that much money for it. It's, it's really a minimal retainer, and just to explain so that they can go in with um, their eyes open. And then this way, when they leave also, and they're at another job, they don't unfortunately violate the, the, the terms of something they signed with a, a previous employer because a lot of times they're continuing obligations. And so it's really just important to understand that. And a lot of times also um, the businesses don't even know they have, you know, 
they they have no clue that that someone's being counseled by an attorney because they think maybe someone just looked on the internet or just some research or some homework but but really it's a lot of value that you that you sometimes add i mean look people pay money for therapists, for psychologists, psychiatrists, or whatnot, because they have emotional problems. Lawyers sometimes do the same thing. You know, they really help counsel their clients so that they can really make the most and maximize their employment relationship and their, their career and their future. What I always tell my, my clients, which is it's a blessing in disguise, because maybe you're going to find something better. And if you hadn't been separated from your job, you never would have looked for something else or Maybe you'll become one of my business clients and I'll help you start a business. And that was maybe the push you needed in order to start your own, your own business, because that does happen often whereby these job transitions, they are not so awful. Try to keep the emotions out of it. Try to keep your business head on and um, look for other opportunities that probably were better. And that was maybe the push you needed to do something else with your life. Helen, if people want to find you, how do they do that? Google my name, but my last name is spelled with an H at the end. So even though it's pronounced block, it is spelled B-L-O-C-H. And so just Google Helen Block and you'll find me. And we'll put your website, Helen, in the show notes for both episodes you did. Okay. Helen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your years of experience and knowledge with us and some cool war stories and and giving us a lot of information. I think you've given our, our listeners a lot to work with. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And it's a a pleasure and an honor to work with both of you who are very, very experienced uh, attorneys in these areas as well. So it makes it a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Thanks, Helen. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.